Welcome to the Professor O Show. This is your host, Professor O. Today's episode is called Cyberpunk 2077 RPG, Race, Politics, and Gangs. Today we'll be discussing the Cyberpunk 2077 gangs and factions, explaining what they say about race, politics, and organized crime, specifically ethnic crime gangs. We'll discuss the cyberpunk genre, the history of scientific racism and fantasy and role-playing games, and we'll have a breakdown of the gangs and factions. This is the first episode of The Professor O Show, where we'll discuss politics, history, and the media. I'm a former journalist, adjunct instructor, high school teacher, and UPS worker, so I think I'll have a lot of interesting perspectives on history, politics, and the media. I hope you enjoy the show. So I have some problems with Cyberpunk 2077's factions and gangs. Even though the game is based on an alternate 2077 future, the factions and gangs seem to be based on dated racial and ethnic stereotypes. And comments by the game developers about the game not being political have got me a little bit worried about how they're going to handle various social and political issues. The portrayal of ethnic-based gangs in media has garnered criticisms in the past because they often perpetuate racist stereotypes. Italian crime families, black and Hispanic street gangs, and Asian martial arts-themed gangs have become cliches in TV, movie, and video games. However, the existence or portrayal of racial gangs isn't entirely racist. Ethnic-based gangs are real and the result of real historical socioeconomic factors. They exist for a reason. Likewise, racially based factions are rooted in the high fantasy and role playing game genres. Scientific racism is an essential feature of these genres. This doesn't mean that all fantasy writers are racist, and it doesn't mean that you're racist if you love high fantasy and the RPG genres, like I do. I just think it's important and interesting to explore how racism and pseudoscience has influenced the fantasy and RPG genres. The cyberpunk genre is perfectly suited to explore issues of race, identity, crime, social power dynamics, and the nature of technology on society and culture. However, the creators of Cyberpunk 2077 seem to be reluctant to admit that they are addressing these issues. The creators are playing the whole, our game is not about politics or current events game. Whether intentional or not, Cyberpunk 2077 is undoubtedly about the important current political issues in the areas of race, crime, identity, sexuality, class disparities, and political corruption. If you take the so-called wokeness or awareness or philosophy or politics out of cyberpunk, you're just left with pop punk or generic sci-fi dribble or better yet, early 2000s hot topic fashion and sci-fi channel mush. 
if you hate race and identity politics, then the cyberpunk genre isn't for you. Cyberpunk or the cyberpunk genre has always been about race, identity or class in some way, shape or form. And I hope to explain that and explore that throughout this discussion. Now, when analyzing media, I view race and identity politics the same way a parent looks at sports. It's incredibly important and it's incredibly interesting as long as it doesn't get in the way of class. Cyberpunk 2077 is a 2020 role-playing video game scheduled to be released in November. CD Projekt Red, creators of the widely successful Witcher series, is releasing the game. The game is based on the cyberpunk RPG series. Not surprisingly, the cyberpunk science fiction genre is a heavy influence on the cyberpunk series. As a fan of the cyberpunk genre, I've been intrigued with the game. The graphics look amazing. I've been looking for a game or any experience to escape 2020. However, like many cyberpunk characters, I'm unemployed and broke, so I'll most likely experience the game through other people's experiences in the form of YouTube playthroughs. From what I've seen in the trailers, the gameplay and the story don't seem that nuanced or exciting. I try to avoid getting hyped for games these days. I've been burned with that a lot before. Still, I'm very curious. The cyberpunk series is set in a fictional world where the real world timeline changes in 1990. Superpowers collapse, mega corporations take over, the world suffers from political turmoil, the Middle East is an apocalyptic nuclear wasteland, famine and poverty is rampant worldwide. Advanced virtual reality computing, cybernetics and bioengineering is common. The game takes place in Night City, a metropolitan city in California. The series has characters such as musicians called the Rocker Boys, bodyguards and assassins called Solos, hackers called Netrunners, road warriors called Nomads, street experts called Fixers, investigative journalists and reporters called Medias, mechanics called Techs or Techies, doctors called medtext and corporate executives and police officers. These are all staples of the cyberpunk genre, the same way dwarves, elves, knights, and dragons are that of the high fantasy genre. The same way religion, honor, good versus evil, the hero's journey, and justice are important themes in high fantasy, in cyberpunk, Alienation, identity, the question of what it means to be human, and injustice are essential themes. Therefore, I was surprised when Cyberpunk 2077's quest designer, Powell Sasko, said, quote, For me, the most important thing is that our game is a closed work and is not a political statement, a political thesis, end quote. Now, I was somewhat reassured when Cyberpunk's original creator, Mike Pondsmith, clarified that by saying, quote, somebody asked me a while back if Cyberpunk was political, and I said inherently it's always political, end quote. Nevertheless, I still got a sense that Cyberpunk was trying to avoid aligning itself with today's current political opinions. I felt the game was trying not to alienate people on the political left or right in order to remain as marketable as possible. Maybe the game was indeed just an action game with cool futuristic elements, a cyberpunk game with no cyberpunk elements. 
However, when the game released its factions, I realized that the game was incredibly political. The game was making statements about our current politics and social issues. Unfortunately, it's not clear if those statements are coherent or appropriate. Cyberpunk is increasingly appearing to look somewhat prejudiced, maybe a little racist, sexist, maybe transphobic, or at the very least, just boring and ignorant. CD Projekt Red released the gang factions for Cyberpunk 2077 in September. The gangs and factions are the Six Street Boys, the Voodoo Boys, the Tiger Claws, the Valentinos, the Moxes, the Maelstroms, the Animals, the Wraiths, and the Aldecados. While most people on social media seemed excited about the reveal, there were some who responded negatively to the gangs. I was one of those people. Some people thought that the gangs were boring and generic. They thought that the gangs were futuristic copies of GTA gangs or Fallout factions. Some people accused the factions of being racist stereotypes. I watched the faction reveal on YouTube cringing through the entire video. The dialogue clip sounded like generic GTA dialogue. I ultimately agreed with most of the negative assessments of the factions. They seemed dated. They were definitely stereotypical, maybe even bigoted, and they were definitely political commentaries on current events such as MAGA, Trump, LGBTQ issues, and race, despite what the game developers stated. I want to discuss three things on this episode. One, how CD Projekt Red's statement about the game not being a political statement are a contradiction to the cyberpunk genre and most of its themes. Two, how and why the issues of race and ethnicity and class is important when discussing organized crime, role-playing games, and the cyberpunk genre. And three, what cyberpunk 2077 seems to be saying about the 2020s. One has to be familiar with the definition and history of cyberpunk in order to understand why the genre is inherently political. Cyberpunk is a science fiction subgenre that focuses on high-tech urban dystopias. They're about human alienation in the face of radical advancements in computing, biology, chemistry, engineering. They feature technologies such as virtual reality, computer-human interfaces, neural implants, and cybernetic or genetic body modifications. They're often set in an urban sprawl, massive metropolitan cities that reach from the hellish subterranean spaces to building tops where hovercrafts and buildings dominate the skies. They often blur the line between real and digital, human and computer, good and evil. However, they tend to favor an evil or pessimistic view of the future. Cyberpunk mostly incorporates the film noir genre of cinema and the Harold Boyle genre of literature. Mix the cartoon show The Jetsons and 2001 A Space Odyssey with Taxi Driver and The Matrix and you'll get cyberpunk. Technology has advanced, but humanity hasn't. In fact, humanity has probably regressed. You've probably watched, read, or played at least one cyberpunk story. A Clockwork Orange, Blade Runner, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, The Matrix series, The Metal Gear Solid franchise, Deuce X, and so on. 
Cyberpunk also has its own subgenre, steampunk, which switches the digital or computer technology for that of Victorian or industrial steam age technology. William S. Burroughs, J.G. Ballard, and Harlan Ellison created stories that could be seen as prototypical cyberpunk. Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep could be seen as the first cyberpunk story. It's the basis of the first great cyberpunk film, Blade Runner, from 1982. However, William Gibson's Neuromancer from 1984 is undoubtedly the first true cyberpunk story. Every cyberpunk story is an altered copy of Neuromancer and the film Blade Runner. Interestingly, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was way ahead of its time in that it used replicants, biologically synthetic people, as opposed to robots or cyborgs. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and Blade Runner established cyberpunk's most enduring themes. What does it mean to be human? Do human clones or synthetic beings have human rights? If they do have rights, how can we justify genetic manipulation? Is it moral or even possible to genetically shape a being's personality and temperament? Is it moral to create a being with heightened, diminished intelligence? Is it moral to create a race of intellectually superior or inferior beings? If a person is created to have genetic advantages, where does that leave the rest of humanity who cannot afford such advantages? How do we know genetic improvements won't lead to unforeseen biological or societal problems? The replicants in Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep were created by a corporation to work as industrial slaves and sex workers. The replicants that revolt against their human oppressors are portrayed as terrorists. Wouldn't we cheer on humans who revolt against their slave masters or their pimps? As the protagonist in the novel kills replicants, we must ask, is he killing monsters or victims? Technology isn't inherently good or evil, despite what utopian scientists or religious fundamentalists might say. But technology can magnify good and evil. Technology, in terms of its societal impacts and availability, are not equal. So how can a technologically advanced society be equal? These are some of the questions and dilemmas that Philip K. Dick and other cyberpunk authors focus on. In Neuromancer and the Matrix series, the characters and reader are forced to question whether the cyber world is more real than the real world. As our economic, labor, and political lives are dominated and consumed by the internet in 2020, we must also ask ourselves whether the internet is more real than the real world. We want to say no, but the answer might increasingly be yes. One of the greatest themes of the film Blade Runner and the anime Akira is the economic disparity among social classes. Blade Runner shows an urban landscape in which the wealthy live in clouds and fly hovercrafts while the poor live in crowded subterranean streets. Deckard in Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep is a poor person who kills replicants in order to afford a real living pet something only rich people can afford in the future due to pollution. In Blade Runner, Deckard is a replicant who's hired to kill other replicants. He's like a poor person or minority forced to kill or oppress other poor people and minorities. Akira shows how poor kids are forced into a life of violence and drug abuse due to a failed social program and government corruption. 
Cyberpunk, while based on the future, is always a reflection on our current society, similar to how great westerns are commentaries on contemporary society. If Cyberpunk 2077 is truly a cyberpunk game, it must address today's political and social issues. Otherwise, it's just a generic futuristic action game. Quest designer Pal Sasko's statement that the game is not political is reminiscent of statements from Infinity Ward, the creators of the Call of Duty series. In 2019, Infinity Ward's gameplay director Jacob Minkoff said, quote, do we touch topics that bear a resemblance to the geopolitics of the world we live in today? Hell yeah, because that's the subject matter of modern warfare. Are we telling a story that has anything to do with the specific governments of any countries that we are portraying? No. So if you're asking, like, is Trump in the video game? No, he isn't. End quote. Minkoff seems to think that because Call of Duty didn't mention President Trump, the game couldn't be political. The game's narrative director went on to contradict Minkoff by admitting that the game would address irrefutably political topics when he said, quote, We do talk about concepts like colonialism and occupation and independence and freedom, end quote. Infinity Ward will have a hard time arguing its latest game, Call of Duty Cold War, is not political since it features President Ronald Reagan. The game's trailer uses clips from Russian defector Yuri Bezmenov describing a vast global communist conspiracy to destabilize the West and destroy America. The game implies that the Soviet Union secretly created protests in foreign countries in order to destabilize them. An allegation right-wing conservatives are levying against China and George Soros to explain the Black Lives Matters protests. The Call of Duty series is political. It makes the statement that violence and U.S. militarism is necessary to keep the world safe and free. It takes a side on the Cold War, the side of America and the West and capitalism. Regardless of whether their opinion is true, it is a clear political opinion. Nevertheless, Infinity Ward wants to be able to market Call of Duty to right wing and left wing audiences. For the right wing, the game confirms and promotes their pro-military, anti-communist and neoconservative viewpoints. For the left wing, the game is marketed as just a fun action game that shows the neutral brutality of war. Cyberpunk 2077's quest designer Pal Sasko was asked whether the Black Lives Matters movement will influence the game. Sasko stated, quote, The important point is that we already have a recorded game at this stage, actually for a long time. This is the last stage in which we do not change anything in the story we are telling, add nothing, or remove anything. These events, as you noticed yourself, took place very recently. End quote. Sasko's statement that the game was already recorded when the Black Lives Matters movement started is unconvincing. Black Lives Matters started in 2013 as a protest responding to the acquittal of the man who murdered Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black teenager. The movement became national in 2014, responding to the deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, unarmed black men murdered by the police. Sasko went on to say, quote, 
The second point is, for us, Cyberpunk 2077 and The Witcher are games that show our philosophy as a studio. The game we are working on is an entertainment medium to a large extent, but for us, it is also an art, a work that shows our vision. It is difficult for me to imagine the events that would have happened for us to suddenly find that we are changing or moving something in order not to touch any specific elements. Anyway, I think you saw elements in the game that touch it, so you could find out for yourself. For me, the most important thing is that our game is not a political statement, a political thesis. For me and my team, Cyberpunk 2077 is a work of art and I always stick to it. I always say it to my designers. I don't feel like I'm producing something. I feel more like I'm painting a picture or making music, stories, movies. This is art for me. And art is the stories we tell the player. And this is the most important thing for us. End quote. Sacco seems to imply that a work of art cannot be political. This is an absurd idea. Any work of art that deals with the person's relationship to family, friends, religion, government, sex, or any aspect of society is political. Obviously, some works of art are overt in their political commentary. A book about elections or war is overtly political in that they are about political events. However, the act of avoiding political statements in a work of art is a political statement. Let's say you decide to paint a farm. You might claim it's not political. I just painted a beautiful scene. That would be political in that you specifically don't want to talk about politics. However, let's analyze that picture of a farm. A farm, a place where food is created to be sold, is a political statement. The farm and its produce inherently says something about the socioeconomic circumstances of the society in which it exists or which the artist exists. The art style, whether abstract, impressionist, or realistic, may even indicate a strain of political ideology. One can still understand someone not making these connections. Ultimately, the decision to paint the farm might not be overtly a political statement, but it still reveals underlying political realities. The political connections might be thin. However, Sasko helped make a game that's explicitly about politics. It's a game about a corporatocracy ruling a socially stratified, futuristic city riddled with crime and ethnic gangs. Yet he claims it's not political. The Quest designer also said, quote, As a studio, we are such an amalgam of different people who have different approaches to political, religious, spiritual, and internal life, also when it comes to sexual orientations or political sympathies. As a studio, we always try to cultivate openness and approach it in such a way that everyone can have a say and that each of these shades can be represented, as long as it is, of course, within the law and reason, so that each player can find here something for everyone and find answers to your own questions, end quote. This is corporate talk for we don't want to offend anyone. CD Projekt Red wants to maximize profits. They're worried that by admitting Cyberpunk 2077 is a political statement, it will offend people on the political left or right. They don't want to alienate the so-called anti-woke gamers or the socially progressive reviewers. They don't want their game to be review bombed by the right or tweeted to death by the left. They want Cyberpunk 2077 to be a fun game where kids shoot and blow things up wearing various skins. 
but they also want the game to be a think piece generator that reflects identity politics. If they sympathize with Black Lives Matters or transgender rights, they'll be accused of being too woke. If they glorify cops or trivialize minority concerns, they'll be canceled. I apologize for using these cliche online buzzwords, but this is how PR specialists think. They want to reach everyone by saying nothing. Unfortunately, for CD Projekt Red, you cannot create a cyberpunk-inspired game without saying something political. Mike Pondsmith, the original pen and paper cyberpunk RPG creator, seems to agree. He states, quote, Cyberpunk is inherently political. Everything is political. Human beings are political. First we got food, then we got prostitution, then we got politics, and we might have gotten politics before prostitution, but I'm not sure. Basically, it's all political, but a big part of what cyberpunk talks about is the disparities of power and how technology readdresses that, end quote. Based on Pondsmith's statement, I would agree that cyberpunk 2077 is political. However, I would also argue that it's definitely a commentary on today's political issues. Let's look at the Black Lives Matters protest in relation to technology and power disparities. The Nation recently reported that an interagency task force involving the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department used a sophisticated cell phone cloning attack, the details of which remain classified, to intercept protesters' phone communications. This year, it was also reported that the LAPD used facial recognition technology 29,817 times since 2009. Facial recognition technology has been criticized since it's been shown that its software often shows racial biases. The software often fails to differentiate between black people. These biases have been so great that cities throughout the country have banned the technology. There's also been reports of people being falsely accused of crimes they did not commit because of this technology. Technology in the form of cell phones and social media websites has allowed black and poor communities to show the world abuses that have been occurring for decades. The Black Lives Matters has relied on social media to organize and promote movement. Technology in the form of cell phones and social media websites have allowed black and poor communities to show the world abuses that have been occurring for decades unseen. The Black Lives Matters movement has relied on the social media to organize and provoke the movement. In fact, the most prominent members of Black Lives Matters and other social movements seem to have an exclusively online presence. Most news events are reported somewhere on social media for everyone to see. Yet if an issue doesn't generate arguments, memes, controversy or on Twitter or Facebook, the issue doesn't seem real. If it's not happening on social media, it's not happening, period. Whether left-wing, right-wing, Black Lives Matter, Russiagate, QAnon, most political activists spend far more time online than in the real world with real people. Social media is the political cyberspace, where events there are far more important and real than the real physical world. Some would argue we're living in a cyberpunk world, or at least the beginnings of one. CD Projekt Red's Quest Designer's statement that the game is not a political statement is tantamount to saying that the game is not political. If a work of art is political, it's making a political statement. 
The cyberpunk genre is inherently political. Cyberpunk is centered on humanity's alienation from family, friends, nature, religion, and governments. Cyberpunk explores humanity's relationship to new forms of technology and social control. By definition, Cyberpunk 2077 will be making a political statement. The question is whether the statement will be interesting or worthwhile. The Cyberpunk 2077 gang and factions seem to reflect racial stereotypes. Race and racism has long been a part of crime gangs and role-playing games. In order to understand where cyberpunk obtained its understanding of race, we need to explore the racial history of American ethnic gangs and the high fantasy genre, and consequently role-playing games. When you think of organized crime, it's almost impossible not to think of race. When you think of organized crime, you inevitably think of the Italian mafia, the Russian mafia, the Mexican mafia. If you hear the names Bloods and Crips, you envision black street gangs in L.A. If you hear the term MS-13, you think El Salvadorians or just Latinos. The Aryan nation is obviously made up of white guys. No race or ethnicity is predisposed to crime. Organized crime and racketeering permeates all levels of society, from the corporate offices to the impoverished slums, from the White House to the trap house. Organized crime doesn't just consist of street gangs or mafias in suits. Banks that knowingly money launder are involved in organized crime. Corporations that illegally fix prices or engage in bribery are part of organized crime. Intelligence organizations that illegally traffic drugs and arms are involved in organized crime. Nevertheless, the public's view of organized crime is limited to ethnically based crime groups or gangs. Racially and ethnically based crime groups do exist, but their existence is caused by political and socioeconomic factors, not race. Gangs profit off of communities. The U.S. society has often segregated communities based on ethnicity and race. Therefore, the most successful or prevalent gangs in the U.S. have been ethnically based gangs. One can look at the late 19th and early 20th century social conditions among immigrants to understand the emergence of ethnically based crime groups. During the second immigration wave, 1820 to 1870, and the third immigration wave, 1881 to 1920, many Europeans immigrated to America. Italians, Irish, Jews, Poles, and Germans immigrated to the U.S. in great numbers due to the political and economic turmoils in Europe, such as the potato famine from 1845 to 1849 and the unification of Italy in 1861. From 1880 to 1915, 13 million Italians migrated out of Italy, making Italy the scene of the largest voluntary immigration in recorded world history. Four million Italians immigrated to the United States, with three million coming between 1900 and 1914. From 1851 to 1930, an estimated 4.5 Irish people arrived in the United States, according to the Library of Congress. Many of the European immigrants arrived to America poor. Like the conquistadors of the 1500s, they were told that America was a land paved in gold. 
Instead of El Dorado, however, they found poverty and unemployment in cities such as New York, Boston, Chicago, and New Orleans. Most immigrants were unskilled workers who didn't speak English and lacked family and contacts in America. Some immigrants survived on menial and low-wage jobs. However, many were taken advantage of by unfair labor practices such as the Padrone system or the Patroni system. The Padrone system was a form of indentured servitude or contract labor where immigrants would work for a boss that provided them with food, housing, and protection from the law. An English-speaking immigrant or first-generation American would serve as a padrone, a middleman between American managers and recently arrived immigrants. Since padrones understood the immigrants' language and culture, they would recruit immigrants for the American managers. They would advocate on behalf of the immigrants. Padrones held enormous power. If an immigrant needed to go to the police or doctors, they had to go through the padrone. If they wanted to negotiate their wages or complain about work conditions or even seek new employment, they had to go through the padrone. They relied on the padrone for their safety, food, and housing. Managers paid padrones. However, padrones also collected money from the immigrants they sponsored. So in many cases, immigrants lost their hard-earned money to padrones or were even in debt to them. The Padrone system ended when the U.S. government passed the Padrone Act in 1874 in order to, quote, prevent this practice of enslaving, buying, selling, and using Italian children as musicians and urchins, end quote. Nevertheless, criminal groups such as the Black Hand, the predecessor of La Cosa Nostra, took over the role of controlling and exploiting immigrants. The earliest documented reports of the Black Hand came from New Orleans in the late 19th century. There was a prominent Italian-American population in New Orleans from the second wave of immigration, 1820 to 1870. The Italian-American mafia, as we know it today, originated from a combination of old Italian organized crime groups, the Patron or Patroni system, and just a pure entrepreneurial desire to fill market demands. Immigrants, whether Italian, Irish, Polish, or otherwise, had economic and social needs. Immigrants needed loans, employment, affordable goods, housing, protection from common criminals, entertainment, and so on. In many cases, the government or the capitalist system did not provide these needs. If an immigrant needed a loan, organized crime provided loan sharking. If they needed refuge from common criminals or the law, organized crime created protection rackets. If they needed affordable food and clothing, organized crime provided black market goods. If they needed hope or an escape from or a distraction from the harshness of society, organized crime provided gambling and alcohol. If they needed pleasure, organized crime provided prostitution. Many of these services existed before the mafia or large gangs. Organized crime, however, simply consolidated these activities within poor ethnic communities. Immigrants and poor people couldn't go to their officials because cops and politicians served the wealthy. And as organized crime grew and gained more money, they bribed cops and political officials into perpetuating the illegal hold that organized crime had on vulnerable communities.
The reason you have gangs based on race is due to the fact that organized crime thrives on exploiting communities. In many places in the world, such as the United States, communities are often segregated by race and class. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, European immigrants were segregated into neighborhoods and ghettos. For example, Italians lived together in places such as Little Italy, New York. There were Little Italys all over the U.S. There were Chinatowns. There were Polish, Jewish, German, and Irish neighborhoods in various cities. There were black towns throughout the South. And after the Great Migration, there were increasingly more black neighborhoods in the North and West. Therefore, Italian gangs such as the New York Five Families or the Chicago Outfit grew out of Italian neighborhoods. The Irish Winterhill Gang of Boston or the Northside Gang of Chicago emerged from Irish communities. There were Jewish, Polish and African-American gangs. Often when a large influx of immigrants are segregated into a community, you see a rise or a creation of organized crime groups. When socially oppressed or economically challenged communities are segregated, there's often the emergence of ethnically based gangs. This is not to say that immigrants or poor people create organized crime. Capitalism, political corruption, and poverty and segregation creates the climate for organized crime to emerge. For example, the Bloods and Crips gangs emerged from segregated and poor black L.A. neighborhoods in the aftermath of the government's systematic destruction of black civil rights groups like the Black Panthers. These gangs and other subsequent gangs took advantage of the fact that the government was flooding the market with cheap drugs while draining the community of jobs and social programs. Various Hispanic gangs emerged from segregated and impoverished neighborhoods. MS-13 was created by El Salvadorian immigrants in the 1970s and 80s in order to protect immigrants from other gangs. In the 1980s, the USSR allowed Russian Jews to immigrate to different parts of the world. From 1989 to 2006, over 1.5 million Russian Jews left Russia. Hundreds of thousands immigrated to the U.S. It's no surprise that the global Russian organized crime syndicates got their foothold in America through Russian neighborhoods and American cities in the 1980s and 1990s. I could waste your time going through the hundreds of various gangs and their offshoots from various ethnic communities, but I won't. You get the point. One thing I want to add is that in truth, many of the gangs you hear about are not actually organized crime. They're just social cliques that use violence to survive. So we have an understanding of where ethnically based gangs come from. They're not inherently racist or the portrayal of these gangs are not inherently racist. But we'll have a further discussion about how they might be a little bit later. What I want to do now is I want to focus on the high fantasy genre and racism. Cyberpunk 2077 is a video game that's inspired by the cyberpunk genre, but the game is an RPG. And in turn, RPGs or role playing games are extensions of the fantasy genre. One must explore the role of race and ethnicity in the high fantasy and RPG genres to understand cyberpunk 2077's gang and faction choices. The role of race in the fantasy genre and RPGs has troubling implications for the real world. J.R. Tolkien created the high fantasy genre as we know it today. High fantasy is a subgenre of the fantasy genre. 
The fantasy genre consists of works that feature magic, supernatural elements set in the real world. The genre has existed as long as there have been myths and supernatural tales. High fantasy stories take place in an alternate or fictional world, featuring their own unique kingdoms, cultures, language, and biological species. Tolkien's works, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings series, form the basis of the high fantasy genre. Robert E. Howard's The Conan series are high fantasy works that predate Tolkien, yet Tolkien's style of high fantasy was far more influential. Tolkien created all the archetypal elements of high fantasy. He made European medieval-like kingdoms, North mythology, and folklore staples of high fantasy. Tolkien is responsible for the fact that hobbits, dwarves, orcs, elves, and dragon races have become common features in high fantasy. In a 2017 public medievalist article entitled Race, the Original Sin of the Fantasy Genre, the author Paul B. Sturdivant explains that Tolkien's conception of the races of Middle-earth have become more or less standard across the fantasy genre. Tolkien's conception of race is disturbing because it argues that race determines one's culture and abilities. Tolkien goes at great length to describe how each race in his story has characteristics that determine their intelligence, work ethic, morality, physical abilities, and other traits. In a Pacific Standard interview, Australian scholar Dr. Helen Young stated, quote, In Middle Earth, unlike reality, race is objectively real rather than socially constructed. There are species, elves, men, dwarves, etc., but within those species, there are races that conform to 19th century race theory in that their physical attributes, hair, color, etc., are associated with non-physical attributes that are both personal and cultural. There is also an explicit racial hierarchy, which is, again, real in the world of the story. Middle Earth is literally a racist's fantasy land, end quote. Tolkien's description of race and their attributes are examples of scientific racism. Scientific racism is an 18th century and 19th century pseudoscience that argues there's a scientific basis for the superiority or inferiority of certain races. For example, Thomas Jefferson believed that science proved that blacks were mentally inferior to whites. Phrenology is another form of scientific racism in which philosophers argued skull marks or skull shapes indicate mental traits. Scientific racism assigned positive and negative traits onto different races. So think if today you wrote a story describing blacks as lazy, whites as evil, Asians as weak, or Jews as untrustworthy, you would rightfully be criticized as being a racist bigot. Even if you describe blacks as physically tough and whites as honorable or Asians as smart and Jews as industrious, you'd still be rightfully called racist. Whether positive or negative, stereotypes limit a person's ability to be an individual. It also justifies unfair treatment towards people. While scientific racism can still be found in some right-wing think tanks and fringe academic circles, it's mostly discredited in the scientific community today. However, later we will be talking about an emergence of scientific racism in the form of technology in a discussion later. 
Nevertheless, in the 18th and 19th century, scientific racism was common, so one might forgive Tolkien for incorporating these ideas into his works. Nevertheless, he should have known by then that scientific racism had been used to justify black slavery and the Jewish Holocaust. One could argue that Tolkien's fantasy races are not humans, thus should not be compared to human races. Yet it is clear that the Middle-earth races are analogous to human races. They are all hominid-like beings that interbreed, share a common or similar languages, and their cultures are based on historical cultures. For example, it's been often stated that hobbits share a similarity to the British culture in Tolkien's conception. Furthermore, the 19th century philosophers sometimes argued that non-whites were a separate species of human. For example, the German physician Franz Ignaz Pruner believed that blacks had brains similar to apes. Tolkien used 19th century scientific racism in his fantasy stories, making scientific racism commonplace in the 20th and 21st century fantasy genre. Tolkien wasn't the only writer to do this. Robert E. Howard's was much more profoundly racist and it showed in his stories, but Tolkien was so influential as young states. Now, acknowledging Tolkien's use of scientific racism doesn't mean that his works cannot be enjoyed today. They're great stories. People are products of their times. Racism and the acceptance of pseudoscience was prevalent in the early 20th century. Unfortunately, scientific racism has become the norm in 20th and 21st century fantasies. Tolkien's work inspired literary works such as The Chronicles of Narnia, Discworld, Harry Potter, and the Game of Thrones series. Perhaps his greatest influence was on gaming. Role-playing games, or RPGs, are games in which players take the role of characters in a fictional story. The players make decisions which impact the story. The decisions are made based on a set of predetermined rules. The most common type of RPGs are tabletop board games and video games. However, there are multiple genres and subgenres. Dungeons and Dragons is arguably the most influential fantasy RPG. Created in 1974, the game allows players to take the role of Tolkien-inspired characters in fantasy settings. A dungeon master acts as the game's storyteller and rules official. Each player chooses an ability score for strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, constitution, and charisma. They then choose a race which is increases or decreases their abilities. There are different dice for different scenarios. In-game events are decided by rolling an appropriate dice. The dice number in the character's ability score determines the outcome of the event. Therefore, in Dungeons & Dragons, racial superiority and inferiority is quantifiable. Fantasy RPGs give the illusion that science and math supports racial prejudice. Even if one doesn't think fantasy races are analogous to human races, it's still odd that we accept stories about worlds where one's race gives them special abilities. An example of the blatant racism and prejudice in the fantasy genre can be seen in Tolkien's description of orcs. In the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings series, hobbits, elves, and humans are described as light-skinned and morally good or neutral. However, orcs are dark-skinned and inherently evil. The orc language is dark speech. 
In Dungeons and Dragons, elves are portrayed positively while dark elves are negative forces. Sturdivant writes, quote, the dark elves they invented are in essence, bizarre world elves. While other elves live in the forest, they live in a blighted world underground. While other elves live according to typical royal structures, dark elves are explicitly matriarchal and have a social structure modeled off organized crime families. While other elves live in harmony with nature and are inherently good, dark elves are sadistic, worship spiders, and are inherently evil. And while other elves are fair-skinned, dark elves are black, end quote. While Tolkien and Dungeons and Dragon writers may not have intended their characters to be racial allegories, it's clear that people have interpreted them to be racial stereotypes. The idea of racism is prevalent within the fantasy genre itself. There are constant examples of entire races or single characters exhibiting hatred of other races in the stories. Dungeons and Dragons use of racial characteristics have become a staple in fantasy gaming. The classic Skyrim game, like many RPG video games, uses races to give players advantages and disadvantages. Skyrim uses elves and dark elves in the form of altmares and dunmares. Interestingly, altmares are described as proud, wise, and beautiful. These high elves are most strongly gifted in the arcane arts of all races. Yet the Dunmer are known for their stealth, magic skills, and resistance to fire. They can also summon their ancestors' wrath. They have advantages as thieves or assassins. Skyrim doesn't just feature fantasy races, it uses human races. The Nords, Imperials, Redguards, and Bretons, and other ancient races. The Nords are clearly a reference to the Nordic people. The Imperials appear to be reflections of the Roman, Greek, and other Mediterranean or Hellenistic peoples. The Red Guards are black people, and the Bretons are allusions to the Britons. The Imperials are described as shrewd diplomats and traitors, whereas the Black Red Guards are naturally talented warriors who are resistant to poison with the ability to create an adrenaline rush. Of course, the Viking-inspired Nords are tall and fair-haired. These descriptions conjure allusions to real-world stereotypes of races. For example, as diplomats and traders, the Greeks and Romans are highly intelligent and cultured, while the barbarian Bretons or Britons are quick and humble. The Nords, like the Nordic Vikings, are tall with blonde hair and blue eyes. The black race is naturally physically gifted like the modern-day black athletes. And their adrenaline rush creates the angry black male. One could argue that I'm overanalyzing these races. However, one has to ask why races, especially human races, are given attributes. Again, in the real world, most people would never tolerate a person arguing that one race is more inherently athletic or more intelligent than another race. Furthermore, Skyrim limits each race to certain skin color types. It describes each race as having unique racial blood types that imbues them with certain traits. There is no difference to the blood of an African, Asian, or European person. Race is a social, not a biological construct. 
now that we have a sense of where ethnically based gangs come from and we have a sense of the role that race has played in the high fantasy and RPG genres, I want to actually look at Cyberpunk 2077's gangs and factions. It's not clear if they have attributes. However, I do think that each of these gangs and factions has a lot to say about our society. I think this is a good time for the interlude. Thank you so much for listening to the Professor O Show up to this point. Here is a cyberpunk inspired song called Blade. After the song, we'll continue with the conversation discussing the various factions and gangs of Cyberpunk 2077. Thank you. So let's go over Cyberpunk 2077's gangs and factions. 
the Six Street Gang, the Voodoo Boys, the Tiger Claws, the Valentinos, the Moxes, the Maelstroms, the Animals, the Wraiths, and the Aldecados. The Sixth Street Gang is a neoconservative faction made up of war veterans who become vigilantes due to the high crime rate in Night City and the helplessness of the police force. They are dedicated to bringing justice to the city. The criminals are taken over the city and the cops can't stop them. So the Sixth Street Gang, military vets, have to take the streets back. The Sixth Street Gang seems like a reference to right-wing militias, Blue Lives Matters, and Trump supporters. According to a 2020 New York Times article, the role of veterans in the newly proliferating militia groups, which sometimes are steeped in racism and other times steeped simply in anti-government zealotry, has increased over the last decade, said a dozen experts on law enforcement, domestic terrorism, and extremist groups. The article describes how President Trump has emboldened right-wing militia groups. Veterans skilled in weapons training and combat tactics help strengthen various militias. Experts say that 15,000 to 20,000 active militia members are in around 300 groups. Historically, militias grow out of wars. Veterans lacking work and still dealing with PTSD often seek a place to find meaning where they can join a brotherhood enacting violence in a crusade. In 2009, an influx of veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan were coming home to a nation that was slowly recovering from a financial crisis. Iraq and Afghanistan were increasingly brutal, meaningless, unpopular wars that were often based on racism towards Muslims, Arabs, and Afghans. Hatred towards Obama, the failed Afghan and Iraq wars, and an economic depression have triggered a large growth in right-wing militias. In response to the Black Lives Matters protests, conservative vigilante groups like the Proud Boys and right-wing militias like the Oath Keepers have intimidated and attacked protesters. Conservatives have portrayed Antifa or anti-fascist activists as domestic terrorists. They've accused Antifa of being organized criminals, even though the FBI has stated that Antifa is just an ideology and not an organization. Conservatives have spread false rumors of Antifa and Black Lives Matters taking over cities and starting massive fires on the West Coast. In June, the FBI said they found no evidence of Antifa involved in violence related to nationwide protests over the death of George Floyd. In fact, they found evidence that right-wing groups were threatening violence against the police and peaceful protesters. Rumors of Antifa and Black Lives Matter's violence has inspired conservative vigilantes. On August 25, 2020, Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old boy, crossed state lines and killed two people with an assault rifle while acting as a vigilante against Black Lives Matter's protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Sixth Street's insignia is a skull and a flag, similar to the image worn by Blue Lives Matters and police forces. In fact, the skull sign is also the popular insignia of The Punisher, a vigilante comic book hero. Blue Lives Matter is a pro-police movement that was created as a response to Black Lives Matters. In many cases, Blue Lives Matters has shown solidarity with right-wing militias and vigilantes. Immediately after 
Rittenhouse killed two people. Police allowed him to walk past them holding an assault rifle and they did not arrest him. Police kill black kids who play with toy guns, but ignore white teenagers who hold assault rifles in the middle of intense protests. President Trump has spread rumors that U.S. cities are, quote, lawless zones occupied by gangs of Black Lives Matters and Antifa criminals. On December 21st, Attorney General Bob Barr declared that New York, Portland and Seattle were, quote, anarchy cities. Barr argued that the cities, quote, permitted violence and destruction of property to persist and have refused to undertake reasonable measures to counteract criminal activities, end quote. In many ways, Barr sounds like a member of Sixth Street Gang who are tired of the police's alleged ineffectiveness. Barr and the president have threatened to cut funding from cities, thus evoking another cyberpunk theme, the abandonment of urban society by political elites. Cyberpunk 2077 is definitely about current politics. It features a right-wing faction espousing the same ideology of President Trump, the Attorney General, and right-wing militias. The game is political. Whatever the role Sixth Street plays in the game's storyline will be a political statement. I should also note that some people will say that some of the Sixth Street members are black. However, one should remember that many of the cops committing injustices are also black and Hispanic. The Voodoo Boys are the only predominantly black faction in the game. It's not clear whether the gang is Haitian or African-American. The Voodoo and Vodun religions are practiced in Haiti, parts of the American South like New Orleans and West Africa. The Voodoo Boys seem to play the role of the magical Negroes. I wouldn't be surprised if it's the Voodoo Boys members who save the main character in a tough cyberspace or VR situation in the story. They're described as, quote, enigmatic netrunners who reveal the secrets of the old net. It seems a little suspicious that the black faction is the mystical and pseudo religious faction helping the main character get in touch with their roots and spiritual sides um, in terms of technology. That is multiple studies have shown that the African-American community has high levels of religious beliefs and practices compared to other ethnic groups. According to a 2017 Huffington Post article, quote, in a nation where rising numbers of people are dropping out of organized religion, one dynamic religious movement continues to display remarkable strength, the black church, end quote. In a 2014 research paper titled Race, Religion and Virtues, the study found that blacks scored higher than other races on many religious virtues. According to the Huffington Post, the report found that Compared to whites, blacks were more humble, more grateful to God, felt more compassionate for strangers, and were likelier to provide emotional support and tangible help to peoples they do not know. I'm not arguing that black people are factually more spiritual or virtuous than any other race. However, it is clear that popular culture and even scholarly studies perceive black people as being more religious than white people. Christianity has been an incredibly powerful force in black history and culture. Christianity served as a way for African-American blacks to assimilate to white America. 
On the other hand, Christianity allowed blacks to fight against racism since the days of slavery. White slave masters allowed blacks to worship as a way of social control. However, blacks used the church to form communities and institutions that pushed against oppression. Slave revolts, the Underground Railroad, the abolitionist movement and the civil rights movement have all relied on the black church to find success. The voodoo or vodun religion is inherently political. Voodoo was a way in which black slaves held on to West African polytheistic and tribal religious beliefs. They mixed aspects of Christianity and West African religions together. This helped slaves retain aspects of their identity and culture that were far older than Christianity. Voodoo was also a subversive and revolutionary philosophy against various aspects of white supremacy. For example, the Haitian Revolution from 1791 to 1804 was successful due in part to the voodoo religion. According to an essay on Brown University's African Studies Department website, quote, Voodoo, both a sacred dance and a religion, was expressly forbidden in the French colonies, and from the very beginning, the colonists tried in vain to crush it. Voodoo prevailed despite the whites' efforts, nurtured in secret by the colony's first slaves. During European colonialism and the Haitian Revolution, voodoo played a singular role for the slaves. Despite rigid prohibitions, voodoo was indeed one of the few areas of total autonomous activity for the African slaves. As a religion and a vital spiritual force, it was a source of psychological liberation in that it enabled them to express and reaffirm that self-existence they objectively recognized through their own labor. Voodoo further enabled the slaves to break away psychologically from the very real and concrete chains of slavery and to see themselves as independent beings. In short, it gave them a sense of human dignity and enabled them to survive. End quote. Is the Voodoo Boys pseudo-religious devotion to the old net related to African-American roots and religion? Is their devotion to the old net a way for them to break away from the technological and social chains of cyberpunk's world? The Voodoo Boys specialize in a virus that freezes neural networks. So they're edge runners or rule breakers that create viruses that cause harm to the physical body. They almost sound like a caricature of gang-ridden, virus-infected Haitian immigrant stereotypes that conservatives feared in the 1990s. In the 1990s, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton turned away thousands of Haitians who sought asylum. The Haitian refugees were kept in detention camps in Guantanamo Bay. 12,000 refugees were held at the base. By 1992, most of the refugees were sent back to Haiti. However, 300 HIV-infected immigrants were forced to stay in the detention camps until they were closed in 1993. During that time, many Americans were against allowing Haitian refugees from entering the country for fear that they would spread HIV or increase crime in the form of gang warfare. I admit I'm probably looking too much into this. I could go deep into the fact that boy is a pejorative term against black people, but I'll assume cyberpunk's black creator meant nothing offensive in that name. The Voodoo Boys. 
Nevertheless, black people can also traffic in black stereotypes and shouldn't be automatically left off the hook for black tropes. The voodoo boys sound a little suspect. Black characters or dark characters are often stereotyped as having a connection to ancestors, magic, poisons, viruses, or spells. At the very least, calling a Haitian gang the voodoo boys just seems corny and lazy. However, the fact that they are hackers shows that they play an essential role in the world of cyberpunk. While hacking is analogous to magic, another trope conferred to black characters in fiction, it is a practice associated with intelligence and ingenuity. It's often reported that black people are not represented enough in the tech sector. Thus, having a predominantly black faction be the most skilled programmers is a positive image for black people. Still, I'm curious why Haitians or Jamaicans or African-Americans are segregated in the year 2077. I'm curious what role ethnicity and race has in Night City. In a world where right-wing vigilantes police the streets, where sex workers are attacked, where an all-black dreadlock wearing gang breaks the rules, where corporations pit poor marginalized people against each other, it would be odd to pretend that racism towards black people is not a major issue in this world. Anti-black racism has always been a reflection of capitalism's need to exploit people. Racism allows people to justify black exploitation, whether we're talking about slavery, mass incarceration, dumping pollution in black neighborhoods, and so forth. If cyberpunk doesn't address racism, why feature an all-black or all-Latino or an all-Asian gang? The Tiger Claws, a Japanese gang, is another racial gang. Again, the name Tiger Claws is an incredibly lazy and corny name for an Asian gang. They have katanas because they're Japanese. They have tattoos just like the Yakuza, only the ink glows because it's the future, of course. Blade Runner and Neuromancer solidified the trope of Asian iconography and pop culture in cyberpunk. The fact that the Tiger Claws own more businesses in Night City than any other gang is a reference to the real-life Yakuza gang. The Yakuza's are known for having a symbiotic relationship with legitimate corporations in Japan. Now, most successful organized crime groups have a relationship with big business in the form of money laundering and illegal labor disputes. However, the Yakuza's partnership with corporations is far more overt and normalized in Japan. A 2017 Forbes report stated that, quote, the National Police Agency estimates that they still collect 5% of all revenues from construction work. Yakuza front companies are involved in waste disposal, entertainment, and labor dispatch. They operate both legitimate and illegal businesses. Now, one group is considering going into the private security racket, end quote. Most people envision gangs operating out of underground bunkers and seedy nightclubs. However, the Yakuza work out of business offices next to major corporations. Yakuza gangs have corporate logos and pension plans. They even have liaisons with law enforcement and other government agencies. The Yakuza engage in illegal activities, but as an organization, they are not illegal. The real Yakuza doesn't use guns. 
In 2017 Japan, there was only one gun murder. It's not clear whether the Tiger Claws are recent immigrants from Japan or whether they are gangs made up of Japanese Americans. Again, there needs to be a political and or social reason why these ethnic gangs exist. What happens in Cyberpunk 2077's version of America that turns Japanese Americans into a marginalized group? What is it about Japanese Americans in Night City that gives them a unique relationship with the corporate world? Cyberpunk 2077 is using the real-life 21st century Yakuza to shape the narrative of their alternate reality Japanese gang in 2077. And if the Tiger Claws, like the Yakuza, believe business is preferable to war, why are they depicted as katana sword-wielding, gun-toting badasses? Perhaps they should take the advice of a former Marine colonel who spent a lot of time in Japan. He says, quote, the Yakuza are Japan's best entrepreneurs by far. But if this Yamaguchi boss was really smart, he'd expand overseas, but into the ramen shop business. That's where the real money is. And it doesn't matter if you can hit a target with a pistol from two feet away. End quote. The use of the Tiger Claws gang is a political and social statement. It's a social statement on the state of the Japanese American or Japanese immigrant population in Night City 2077. It's a political statement on the relationship between legitimate corporations and organized crime. One of the biggest political news stories of 2020 is corporate corruption with organized crime. In September 2020, BuzzFeed, in cooperation with 12 news organizations, reported on a series of documents known as the FinCEN files, which showed clear evidence that corporations have knowingly laundered trillions of dollars for organized crime and terrorist networks. Whenever U.S. banks suspect that their activities may be in concert with criminal activity, they must send suspicious activity reports to the Treasury Department. The BuzzFeed report showed that some of the largest banks in the world approved transactions with criminal organizations despite numerous warnings from their own staff. In order to hide the illegal sources of their money, drug cartels, terrorists, and other international crime groups have been laundering their money through major banks. This basically means you want to hide the source of your money. You don't want the government or other people to know that it comes from illegal activities. Big banks and multinational companies have been profiting greatly from illegal activities such as drug trafficking, slavery, terrorist attacks, illegal arms dealings, and so forth. Furthermore, the U.S. government has been fully aware of these activities. The government has ignored most of the suspicious activity reports banks have given them. And even when the government punishes banks for illegally helping criminal elements, the punishments are, quote, sweetheart deals that give banks a fine amounting to a mere fraction of their annual profits and a second chance to clean up their acts, end quote, according to BuzzFeed. The banks include J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of New York Mellon, HSBC, Standard Chartered and Deutsche Bank. It should be noted that President Trump has been publicly accused of money laundering in connection with Deutsche Bank. In August, Deutsche Bank had to hand over eight years worth of financial records related to their relationship with Trump. This includes the president's tax records and corporate records. 
Attorneys for the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance argued that the subpoena for Trump's financial records was necessary due to reports of extensive and protracted criminal conduct at the Trump Organization. New York prosecutors originally investigated Trump in relation to allegations he used his business to pay hush money to cover up affairs. However, it has been widely reported that prosecutors have expanded their investigation towards the Trump organization's allegedly widespread criminal activities. Unfortunately, in our society, we view organized crime as the activities of street gangs and ethnically based criminal organizations. In truth, organized crime is no different than racketeering. The term racketeering, political corruption, and corporate malfeasance are euphemisms for organized crime. Corporate corruption in the form of money laundering and bribery is the glue that holds global organized crime together. One can even argue that the global economy, as it stands, relies on organized crime. As BuzzFeed states, it's hard to separate the dark economy from what people think of as the legitimate economy. The Valentinos are another racial gang. They're an Hispanic gang. They are futuristic cholos, high-tech lowriders. The gang looks like an allusion to the real-life 18th and 38th Street gangs or the Mexican Mafia. The video trailer for the factions literally shows them driving futuristic cars, bouncing up and down. I'm curious whether they have flying cars with hydraulics. The cholo trope is boring and offensive. The game reduces Hispanics to being a low-class violent gang, essentially. Interestingly, the Valentinos are the largest gang. Is this because Hispanics are the largest population in this world? What type of socioeconomic issues are Hispanics dealing with to account for them having the largest gang? Is this a commentary on the fact that in the real world, the Latino population is growing considerably and will soon overtake the white population? Regardless of CD Projekt Red's intention, the Valentinos are a political statement on current racial issues. President Trump and numerous conservative politicians have consistently portrayed Hispanics and Latinos and undocumented immigrants as rapists and murderers. In one speech, Trump stated, quote, when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some I assume are good people. End quote. A great deal of Trump's popularity among the right has been his insistence that he will build a wall to black Latino people from entering the U.S. As kids and young adults play cyberpunk 2077, the way in which the game addresses the Valentino gang will have political implications. The game will either inadvertently or purposefully address Latino racist stereotypes. The Moxes are described as freak shows. It appears that the Moxes are an allusion to real world violence towards sex workers and transgendered people. In 2019, Democratic primary candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren declared that the frequent murder of black trans women was a crisis. She said that in order to protect these women, people needed to, quote, fight back. This is literally the concept behind the Moxes. They are described as call girls, punks, and sexual minorities who join forces to protect sex workers after a string of murders against their community. 
Warren didn't mean that people should fight back with gang violence, of course. She meant that the government should help and protect the victims. However, as in most cyberpunk stories, the government has abandoned the people of Night City. But again, cyberpunk is a reflection on our society, and in many cases, we've also abandoned sex workers and prostitutes. Violence towards prostitutes and sex workers has long been a societal problem. Since prostitutes are often engaged in an illegal trade, they are reluctant or unable to seek help from the law. They face violence from pimps and customers. The number of trans women murdered in 2020 surpassed the 2019 total in only seven months, according to the National Center for Transgender Equality. The government hasn't only abandoned sex workers, they've actively hurt them. Sex worker murders saw an increase after the government passed the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, H.R. 1865, also called FOSTA or SESTA, on April 11, 2018. The bill allows the government to prosecute websites that knowingly allow sex trafficking to occur on their platform. The Communications Decency Act of 1996 exempted websites from criminal prosecution if its users trafficked sex or illegal pornography. Foster now made websites liable for sex trafficking of all types. This hurt adult sex workers who relied on websites like Backpage.com to make a living. Online prostitution sites allowed workers to work independently and away from dangerous streets. FOSTA forced many sex workers to turn to pimps, organized crime, and the streets. Multiple studies from the World Health Organization, Amnesty International, and multiple UN-affiliated organizations and universities have shown that the best way to protect sex workers is to decriminalize prostitution. Decriminalization allows sex workers to work independently of violent criminal elements and give them access to health care, financial stability, and labor rights. According to a 2017 report titled Craigslist's Effect on Violence Against Women, when Craigslist facilitated prostitution online, sex workers' death fell by 17.4%. FOSTA, unfortunately, directly led to sex workers being murdered and going missing. This is a clear example of technology and the government actions hurting marginalized people. This is a major theme of the cyberpunk genre. Cyberpunk often shows how technology can be liberating and harmful. The story behind the Moxes is undoubtedly political. It speaks to serious current political issues. I'm worried about how cyberpunk will address these issues. Why are the Moxes described as, quote, freak shows? Does the term freak refer to their sexuality or their gender? Body modification is presented as a common societal practice in cyberpunk 2077. So Moxes shouldn't be considered freaks or strange since they alter their physical appearance. The Maelstroms are a faction that engage in extreme body modification, yet they aren't labeled freak shows. And in a world where VR sex is common, why would Night City citizens think sex workers or sexually active women are freaks? Something is off with the way Cyberpunk 2077 views sexuality and gender. Could it be that like many conservatives in 2020 America, Night City citizens in 2077 are threatened and appalled by female sexuality? I can't help but think of the conservative backlash against Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's 2020 WAP or Wet Ass Pussy song. 
Why are sex workers being killed? Is it hatred against women? A hatred against loose sexual morals? A hatred against transgender body modification? There is a danger that the moxes will just be simple eye candy or objects for the male gaze. It will be interesting to see how the game addresses the sex workers and sexual minorities in this fictional world. Is prostitution illegal? If so, why is prostitution still illegal in 2077? What role does religion and social morals play in a futuristic cyberpunk setting? Again, cyberpunk is making a social and political statement, whether it intends to or not. As stated earlier, the maelstroms engage in body modifications such as replacing their faces with large LED lenses, yet they are not described as freak shows. They dismember and skin alive their victims, according to their description, but they're not freak shows. They are said to be obsessed with cyber technology, yet appears that most factions are obsessed with cyber technology. This is cyberpunk. Do the maelstroms turn their bodies into mechanical monstrosities to reflect a sense of alienation from humanity or a sense that they are dehumanized? One Psychology Today article asked whether tattoos are a form of individualizing oneself or a way to fit into society. Tattoos were originally associated with sailors, soldiers, and criminals. In Japan, tattoos are heavily associated with the Yakuza. Tattoos early on were a way of separating oneself from society. The Yakuza used tattoos as a way to separate their members from the outside world. It was a way to warn people. The tattoo is a mark of the outsider. One psychologist working in the prison system noticed that 90% of prisoners had tattoos. While the percentage of adults in America in the public with tattoos rose from 14 to 21% between 2008 and 2012, according to an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. While prison tattoos were self-drawn and crude, depicting truly dangerous and subversive images, today's tattoos in the public are commonly pop culture references. One academic has described the mass use of tattoos as, quote, the need of the tattooed to express themselves and their individuality, end quote. Tattoos were a way of people individualizing themselves in a mass society, a problem all the more pressing in a society fixed on celebrity culture. In a future world where everyone already has tattoos and body piercings and interchangeable body modification, maybe the ultimate way to show your individuality is to rip your face off and replace it with a computer monitor or LED lights like the Maelstroms do. Forget just replacing your bones and flesh with robotic parts that look like human parts. You can replace your human shape and traits with mechanical machine parts with mechanical machine shapes. Don't get a tattoo of a car, look like a car. If humanity has abandoned you and failed you, why look human? But in time, even the most extreme body modifications could become a fad or become the norm. Could there be a distant future where there isn't a common look to humans? Everyone looks like a mechanical machine or a cybernetic furry or a cartoon character? These are some of the issues that Melstrom brings up. Again, a common theme in cyberpunk is what does it mean to be human? 
in a world in which technology is rapidly advancing and where everyone looks strange and different and changing, maybe people will go to extremes to show their individuality. And again, if you're living in an oppressive government or an oppressive society where there aren't ways for you to healthily express yourselves, maybe you will turn to literally self-destructive type ways of expressing your individuality. You don't have a political voice or maybe you don't have any economic autonomy or power. Again, you have power over how your body looks. So you might go to the extremes to do that because you can't have any impact on the outside world. The animal faction is interesting because it allows for a common RPG action trope while avoiding certain stale stereotypes. Nevertheless, there still are some stereotypes in this faction. A common trope in high fantasy or action RPGs is to have a faction that has superior strength or aggression. As I described earlier, there often is a racial connotation associated with tank builds. Assigning strength to a race or ethnicity is problematic. However, the animals bioengineering and body modifications to create superior strength factions create something a little bit different. Bodybuilding and strength training is a common form of body modification. Since ancient times, people have sculpted their bodies through exercise and certain disciplines. However, the 21st century's advancements in drugs, limb replacements, genetic manipulation is predicted to radically change what it means to modify the human body. It's interesting that the animals are all big. Now, if there is a faction that was just focused on strength, you could have body modifications that made you strong, but still gave you a slender or sleek physique. The fact that the animals are chosen to have very large bodies speaks to something interesting. It speaks to the fact that the animals want to project their strength to the outside world. They want people to think or know that they're strong. Is it to instill fear? Is it revealing that in an incredibly violent and unforgiving society, the animals need to survive by scaring off potential aggressors? It's been noted that in certain violent communities, such as poor and crime-ridden neighborhoods, war zones, or prisons, young men often feign aggression and masculinity to avoid being seen as weak. Because in a violent setting, being perceived as weak could attract danger. So in many ways, the animals focus on body modification to look really big could just be a defense mechanism in a brutal world. Growing up in the inner city, I've often seen this in other people. In fact, I've often done this myself. You're walking down the street, whether at night or in the morning or anytime, you often want to kind of project a certain strength or confidence or assuredness so that you're not perceived as being as someone who's weak. Now, again, I've done this sometimes consciously, unconsciously, and I've observed other people do this. But you also see very extreme versions of this in which people have that more aggressive caricature or attitude because again it's perceived that this will actually protect you from other predators out there in the streets i often find that this is actually kind of nonsense and that kind of behavior actually a lot of times attracts danger but again i could be wrong on that but it is an issue that if you speak to a lot of people in the inner cities that's something that often comes up this idea that you have to project a certain strength or masculinity to protect yourselves and the ones you love. 
Now, I certainly don't think this is problematic. This is an action game, so I'm expecting there to be a lot of violence and action and shooting and explosions and all that, and that's actually something I want. I just think it would be actually really cool to see if the game addresses this idea of masculinity or violence and so forth, and, you know, if there's any insights they can put onto this. But again, you know, I like action and violence in video games and movies. Last but not least, I want to talk about the Wraiths and the Aldecados. These are the two nomadic factions in the game. It's not clear whether their nomadic lifestyle is more out of choice or necessity. The Wraiths are described as lawless bandits that prey on the weak, while the Aldecados are said to be scavengers, bootleggers, and smugglers. They also work as farm laborers. It appears the Wraiths are supposed to enjoy committing violence, while the Aldecados commit violence out of necessity. Is this the game making statements that not all criminals are inherently evil? Perhaps some criminals are forced into a life of crime due to social factors such as unemployment, corruption, and lawlessness. Banditry is often interpreted as acts of terror. Is attacking a corporate or government target an act of terror? These concepts sound political. The fact that they live in a nomadic territory is a political statement in itself. Why do they live in these badlands? Is it because the city was unable to develop these areas? Is it because the city doesn't want to develop these areas? What is it about these areas that create these strong bands such as the Wraiths and the Aldecados? And in terms of the Aldecados working as farm laborers, what relationship do the badlands have with the city? Do they produce food? Do they produce certain products that the city depends on? In history, nomadic groups have always had a very strong relationship with cities or urban areas. We often think of nomads as being separate or by themselves, but the way that they make a living is, again, by interacting with the cities. They often get tools from the cities, weapons from the cities. They get sometimes even food from the cities. Again, the nomadic life is inherently a political statement on what's going on in terms of the urban development and economics. So I'll be interested to see if the game touches on that. Again, maybe the game won't focus on this too much, but as a cyberpunk game, it will be making some type of statement in terms of the relationship between the nomads and the urban dwellers. And in terms of the Badlands, I should say that science fiction has often romanticized the idea of a post-apocalyptic world. It's often used as a way to harken back to the Old West, a time where the law didn't have such a grip on society and where there was still a sense of freedom and individualism. So again, that is another political statement in terms of how they portray the regions of the Badlands in terms of the nomads. Also, nomadic life and the Badlands could also indicate some type of revolution or banditry. Again, places outside of the urban area often are breeding grounds for banditry, revolution, and other forms of organized crime and factions. So that will be, again, an interesting political statement that the game might make. Oh yeah, there's one gang faction I forgot to mention the police forces. In a 2019 WCCF Tech article, Avin Liu, a Cyberpunk 2077 game developer, described the police as follows, quote, the way that works is that they are basically up for hire. 
basically the law exists to take bribes from corporations. So a corporation might pass a law that you can't sell a medicine anymore and they're going to enforce it. The only reason they got the law passed was that they bribed the government and they're only using it as a proxy. So it's not a place where you want to trust the government necessarily, end quote. The game's police force is similar to early and recent American police departments. Before the establishment of the modern police forces, most cities like New York, Philadelphia, and Chicago had a night watch, a force of volunteer law enforcement officers. Night watchmen were not respected, well-paid, or trained. Wealthy individuals were more likely to hire criminals to defend their property or seek justice. It was common for businessmen to hire thieves to investigate or prevent robberies. If you were lucky, you might find a Sherlock Holmes-like detective, but he'd most likely be a thief or criminal himself. It's not surprising that the major urban police forces like the Boston PD, NYPD, Chicago PD, and LAPD were created during the Industrial Revolution's apex and the second wave of immigration. Boston established the first full-time police force in 1838, the NYPD was created in 1845, the Chicago PD in 1835, and the LAPD in 1869. Let's look at the early history of the New York police forces to understand how the cops operated like a gang. The New York police forces was created in response to class and racial tensions. At the end of the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution and capitalism had created incredible class disparities. A growing workforce was being exploited and treated like factory machine parts. They endured work-related injuries and illness and poor treatment. Basic benefits such as wage rights, health care, unemployment pay, retirement pay, workers' compensation, and so forth were not available to most people. The labor movement emerged in the 19th century to fight against the oppression that was being faced in the capitalist system. The movement worked to ensure safer working conditions, economic security, and health care for the working class. The Communist Manifesto was published in 1848. It described history as a class struggle. It called for the working class to revolt around the world. The wealthy elites were scared that the working class would organize to challenge their control of the economy. Therefore, the elites were worried about a growing immigrant population that made up most of the working class communities in cities like Boston, New York, Chicago, and other major cities. Anglo-Americans and Protestants and nativists were also threatened by immigrants, fearing they would take their jobs, gain political power, and change the racial and religious makeup of the nation. Many of the immigrants were Catholic and had different backgrounds and different languages that nativists, those who were born in America, feared. In many ways, the police forces were created to control the working class labor movements and these new ethnic communities. According to a 2017 Time magazine article, How the U.S. Got Its Police Force, quote, For example, businessmen in the late 19th century had both connections to politicians and an image of the kinds of people most likely to go on strike and disrupt their workforce. So it's no coincidence that by the late 1880s, all major U.S. cities had police forces. Fears of labor union organizers and a large wave of Catholic, 
Irish, Italian, German, and Eastern European immigrants who looked and acted differently from the people who had dominated cities before drove the call for the preservation of law and order, or at least the version of it promoted by dominant interests, end quote. The police force was essentially a gang, an enforcement arm for the wealthy and political elites. Americans today forget that before prohibition, the war on drugs and terrorism, the police were most associated with violently quelling labor movements. According to a Vanity Fair article on the history of police unions, quote, during the 1886 Haymarket Affair, police fired on the crowds during a dispute with striking workers. During the 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain, the largest labor uprising in American history, thousands of West Virginians led by the United Mine Workers were in armed struggle against thousands of police and National Guardsmen. The local sheriff, Don Chaffin, was paid by mine operators to beat arrest or intimidate suspected union organizers, a job which each year earned him more than 10 times his annual salary in bribes and helped to maintain a well-funded department. By 1921, his net worth was about $350,000. In the 1937 Memorial Day Massacre, police fired on a demonstration of steel workers, killing 10 and seriously wounding many others, including a baby and an 11-year-old boy. A worker on the scene said that as their injured fell under the hail of bullets, it looked as if they were being mowed down by a scythe, end quote. In the South, the police forces were created to control labor. However, instead of immigrants, the police brutally controlled black people. Law enforcement, the successor of slave catchers, was no longer focused on catching freed slaves. After slavery, the police were focused on treating free black people as slaves. Historian Eric Foner stated that, quote, virtually from the moment the Civil War ended, the search began for legal means of subordinating a volatile black population that regarded economic independence as a corollary of freedom and the old labor discipline as a badge of slavery, end quote. Thus, on behalf of the wealthy white elite, the police enforced the laws that prevented blacks from having economic and political rights. Blacks couldn't travel from town to town without papers. They weren't allowed to negotiate their wages. They were often forced to work exclusively for certain managers. They had to pay extra exorbitant taxes if they wanted to work jobs other than servants or farmers. In major cities like New York and Boston, the city government used the police force the same way the mafia used its enforcers. Politicians used the police to win elections and maintain political power. However, organized crime bribed the police in order to ensure their activities thrived unabated. In many cases, the politicians were the actual heads of organized crime groups. According to Time magazine, quote, at the same time, the late 19th century was the era of political machines, so police captains and sergeants for each precinct were often picked by the local political party ward leader, who often owned taverns or ran street gangs that intimidated voters. They then were able to use police to harass opponents of that particular political party or provide payoffs to officers to turn a blind eye to allow illegal drinking, gambling, and prostitution, end quote. The New York police forces have historically been an ethnic-based gang. 
Early law enforcement was created to control immigrant communities. Immigrants were seen as people prone to crime and drunkenness. The police were tasked with solving the, quote, Irish problem. However, as the Irish population grew, they gained more political power through political machines. Large Irish and immigrant populations had the population numbers to vote in politicians and officials. If immigrants' populations helped government officials win elections, the elected officials would secure jobs for the immigrant communities. This process was known as the spoil system. Irish politicians and voters dominated the political machines by the early 20th century. Therefore, the early NYPD was heavily staffed by Irish Americans. This is where you get the stereotype of the Irish cop. Interestingly, the early New York law enforcement was ethnically and politically divided like a gang rivalry. Call it the Municipal Metropolitan Gang Wars. The municipal police was controlled by the city and made up of immigrant communities such as the Irish. However, the Metropolitan Police was a state-run force that was made up of Anglo and native-born Americans. These two groups battled in the streets, according to the New York Times. The municipal police was less law enforcement and more gang enforcement, protecting a corrupt Mayor Fernando Wood. As the New York Daily News stated, quote, Under Wood, the city's municipal force was so corrupt that in 1857, the state legislature replaced it with the new Metropolitan Police Force. The mayor refused to disband the municipals and his arrest was ordered. Wood occupied City Hall with 300 municipals and 50 metropolitans arrived to arrest him, at which point the dueling forces brawled in the streets. For a few months that year, the city had rival police forces where members of one force would routinely release people arrested by the other until Wood capitulated to a court order and disbanded the municipals, end quote. Police corruption and gang-like behavior continued throughout the 20th and 21st century. As depicted in the 1973 film Serpico, police officer Frank Serpico revealed widespread corruption in the NYPD in the 1970s. In the 1990s, the Rampart scandal revealed that an elite LAPD anti-gang unit called Crash was involved in drug dealing, robbery, murder, and extortion. In fact, the crash unit has even been linked to the murders of rap stars Tupac Shakur and Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls. The FX series The Shield is largely based on this scandal. On June 18, 2020, an L.A. County Sheriff's deputy shot and murdered Andre Guardo, an 18-year-old security guard. A whistleblower testified that the murderer, Deputy Miguel Vega, was part of an internal department gang known as the Executioners, according to an insider report. Vega allegedly killed Guardo as an initiation rite. The Executioners are described as a gang inside the Sheriff's Department that wear Grim Reaper tattoos, signifying that they've killed suspects. A 2020 article from The Intercept reported that the FBI has been aware of white supremacists infiltrating law enforcement agencies throughout the U.S. since 2006. The modern police force was created to control and thwart labor movements. Therefore, it's ironic that in an age when most labor unions have been stripped of their power, police unions are among the most powerful political forces in the nation.
Today, the Fraternal Order of Police represents around 330,000 sworn police officers in the U.S. Most unions fight to increase wages or ensure health care. Police unions fight to protect members who kill the public. The police forces in the U.S. are described as a brotherhood. Like a gang, they dehumanize and demonize outside members. They have their own language, their own street code, their own insignia. The term Blue Lives Matter shows that the police officers seize themselves as a race onto themselves. Police officers are not white, black, Hispanic, or Asian. They're blue. They are not civilians or servants. They don't have to follow the law. They're a gang. I want you to think back to what I said about black orcs. After Officer Darren Wilson killed Michael Brown, a black 17-year-old, he said of the teenager, it looks like a demon. So in conclusion, it's clear that the gangs and factions of Cyberpunk 2077 are definitely political statements. They're definitely commentaries on current political events. The question, again, is how they're going to address this in the actual game. As I said before, the use of ethnic gangs is not racist. However, they do have a danger of perpetuating certain racial tropes. Ethnic gangs have an historical basis, and scientific racism has a history in high fantasy and RPG genre games. It will be interesting to see how the gangs and factions subvert this or continue this um, in the game. I haven't played Cyberpunk 2077, but I intend to. As I stated before, I'm a little bit apprehensive as to how well the game is going to be. That being said, I am into shooter games, I am into action games, and I look forward to having an opportunity of either watching other people play this game, or maybe with the support of viewers like you, I might be able to buy the game to review it as well. Either way, I will be interested to see how the game develops. And based on how the game turns out, I might write another essay in terms of showing how the game adequately or disappointingly represents cyberpunk and the various political themes it explores. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening to the first episode of The Professor O Show. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support more episodes, please support The Professor O Show on Patreon. I hope to be able to release three episodes a month. I would also like to stream four days a week on Twitch discussing current events. Your support will help me get much-needed equipment to provide the best listener experience possible. Thank you again for listening to The Professor O Show. Wreckage is everywhere. Civil rights leaders make a joint condemnation of the violence and call for an end to the rioting. President Johnson, using firm words, urges the nation's citizens to support the maintenance of law and order. I know that the vast majority of Negroes and whites are shocked and are outraged by them. Pillage, looting, murder, and arson have nothing to do with civil rights. They are criminal conduct. Your president calls upon all of our people in all of our cities to join in a determined program 
to maintain law and order, to condemn and to combat lawlessness in all of its forms, and firmly to show by word and by deed that riot, looting, and public disorder will just not be tolerated. care of the reason, not only will they eliminate this one, but all others that will come about.